Hello and welcome to Critical Horizons, a podcast by the Future Laboratory. We specialise in making a better future happen for businesses through our proprietary trends intelligence and strategic research. We aim to give our clients a glimpse of the future long before the rest of the world discovers it. As part of our Futurist in Residence partnership with the Corinthia Hotel London, we host a regular series of breakfast briefings in which we invite a world-renowned thinker to discuss ideas that challenge the status quo and also shed light upon the emerging behaviours that will drive seismic shifts for brands and consumers alike. This month's guest is Douglas Rushkoff. Named one of the world's 10 most influential intellectuals by MIT, he is the author of 20 books, the most recent of which is Team Human, which is also a podcast series. His work explores how different technological environments change our relationship to narrative, money, power and one another. He has been a leading voice for applying digital media towards social and economic justice. He's also Professor of Media Theory and Digital Economics at CUNY Queens. He even once played keyboards in the cult industrial band Psychic TV. What you're about to listen to is a recording between Rushkoff and myself, Tim Noakes, in which we cover the future of universal basic income, AI ethics, persuasive design, and even some limbic consonants. And if you don't know what that is, please do listen on and let Mr. Rushkoff enlighten you. It's Critical Horizons by the Future Laboratory. So let's start with the premise behind this wonderful new book. And it's not really a book, it's a manifesto. So talk to us about what is the premise? What inspired you to actually put this uh, manifesto together? Well, what, what inspired me, I guess it was almost a negative inspiration, was uh, I was on a panel with a, uh, with a famous uh, singularity cheerleader who was arguing that once the singularity happens and computers are smarter than us, that we should pass the evolutionary torch to our successors and accept the inevitability of our obsolescence or even extinction and, just, and be okay with that. And I argued that human beings are special, that we're quirky, that we bring uh, uh, not just randomness, but novelty to experience, uh, that we, we can live in kind of liminal places and embrace ambiguity and sustain ambiguity over time and not feel, feel compelled necessarily to resolve it in one place or another. And that there's maybe some things we don't understand about who and what we are, and, and, and we should actually uh, uh, reserve a place for humans and humanity in the digital future. And he said, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're a human. <laughs> As if it was, you know, <laughs> hubris and self-interested. And that's when I said, okay, fine, I'm on Team Human. And that was where the sort of the meme uh, 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 was hatched. And then the more I thought about it, the more the idea of Team Human um, seemed essential that, that I started to see the, the main problem of both capitalism and the way we're deploying digital technology is that it's uh, uh, preventing us from uh, uh, executing humanity as the team sport that I think it is, that, that it's helped reinforce a very kind of survival of the fittest, atomized, individualized understanding of human experience, which 
negates or defeats our, our, our any potential for, for solidarity and, and connection and, and, and defeats you know, 500,000 years of evolved social mechanisms that give us uh, a grounding and let us actually be, be human. So then, yeah, I thought I need to write a manifesto to explain that being human is a team sport, that we come in with dignity, that we're worth more than our utility value, and that even if you can't articulate what it is, um, that maybe is almost the most important reason not to uh, conclude that we're done with our story. Yeah, I agree. When, when I read the book, you know, it made me start looking at everything very differently, mm. you know, which is testament to your writing, but also the points that you put across. And even this morning on the way here, I was checking emails like everyone else on the train. Everyone's just like flicking through. And I got an email that said, learn how to write copy that Google loves. And then underneath it, it had a, a button that said, release the bots. And then it had a capture screen that said, prove your humanity. And then I had to tick a box to prove that I was human. I guess my question is, you know, why can't Google learn to love the copy we write? You know, when did humanity become the problem and technology the solution? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I would, I would argue that that started in the, uh, in the dawn of the industrial age. That, you know, most of us think that factories and industrialism was created to get more products out more efficiently to people. And, you know, as I've researched it, it was really not about that at all. It was, you know, after the development of the chartered monopolies, which put all the small businesses out of business and central currency, which made it impossible to trade easily. We had a money that was optimized for extraction that, that, that from then on, uh, people didn't want qualified uh, workers in their companies. They wanted the cheapest workers they could find. You know, if you, if you have the monopoly on uh, shoe manufacturing in England in 1200, are you going to try to hire the most qualified shoemakers in the world? No, you're going to try to go to the, the equivalent of the, the you know, Home Depot parking lot and get the you know, undocumented immigrants, bring them in and train them in 10 minutes how to do one little part of shoe manufacturing. So technology was really about, at that point, about creating systems that could remove human beings, remove human value from the equation. So we, do, we did you know, sort of uh, uh, mass production, uh, alienated the worker from the, the value that they were creating. Then we needed uh, mass marketing to disconnect the, the producer from the consumer. So now you're going to buy from a factory a thousand miles away rather than another person in your community. And then we got uh, mass media to promote that mass marketing, to, to get a brand into your home, onto your television, so you could relate to a brand rather than other people. So it's sort of each step of the way, our understanding of technology and media and, and marketing and branding was always about replacing human relationships and human value with, uh, with something else. So you know, when we transitioned to the, to the digital age, except for a short period between maybe you know, March of 1993 to April, um, <laughs> when we thought that the net would be about, you know, the Gaia hypothesis yeah. and the retrieval of medieval values and all that, and peer-to-peer -peer wonderful human-to-human -human culture, um, the net has been about really just pumping steroids into that same bankrupt uh, model of, of extraction. What is their reaction when you go to Palo Alto, when you talk 
um, about Team Human to the people who actually can make a difference to the tech that we use? What is their general reaction? It depends. I mean, there's two kinds. There's the ones who are still working in it who say it's just too late. You know, and those are people who are just really trying to earn enough money to insulate themselves from the reality that they're creating by earning money in that way. And they understand it as a kind of a race. Can I earn enough money to have my family live up in Mill Valley and send my kid to Rudolph Steiner schools and not let them use iPads and have a goat share and organic you know, soybeans and stuff um, while the rest of the world <coughs> suffers um, because this is just the way it is and I'm not big enough to change the system. Or they quit and move into what they're now calling like the humane technology industry. And humane technology has its own sort of problems because it's still techno-solutionist in spirit. So the idea is we're going to use, uh, even though we've, you know, I'm responsible for the CAPTCHA feature on Snapchat that addicted all these children, or I was the one who, you know, ported the algorithms from Las Vegas slot machines into the social media platform, now I'm going to make technology that rehumanizes people or that, that, that tells people how many hours they've spent on their iPhone today. And the whole idea of humane technology, as I see it, is it, it sounds like, like cage-free chickens, right? We're going to treat them as humanely as possible on their way to the slaughter. Yeah. So now we're going to treat humans as humanely as possible while we extract their data and and you know, manipulate their behavior. We're going to do it humanely. And the orientation between people and technology is reversed. It's still, what is technology doing to people, rather mm. than what are people doing through technology? And it's that, that passivity that I, that I see is almost the core uh, problem for, for Team Human as we try to uh, uh, reanimate our, our autonomy. Do you think it should be a legal requirement for independent AI ethicists to be embedded into tech companies? So people who have no kind of, you know, shared kind of profit, you know, no assets, no, no kind of like hidden agenda into seeing this company succeed. Do you think there's ways of actually embedding independent ethicists into all tech companies to help embed this humanity into the tech? There would have been. <clears throat> there would have been. I remember back when... Um, when Google did their auction IPO, remember back then, and they said, we're going we're gonna to go public, but we're going to do it differently. It's going to be an auction and bottom up and all that. I started emailing Larry and Sergey saying, look, if you're going to go to that stage, you need a, uh, at least one anthropologist in residence. You know, because you're, it was the time they were still saying, don't be evil. Yeah. And I say, why don't you have someone just to be evaluating, an ombudsman inside, is this evil or not? Because you know, if yeah. you don't do evil, you might as well have someone just just How'd watching. How do you gauge it when and there's you're inside enough, the machine? Right, yeah. and there's enough money there for you know, pay one person seventy thousand even and health insurance. You know, I'll do it. Get someone else to do it. Whatever, just to be sort of watching. You don't. They don't have to tell the public, but they'll report to you, saying, you know, what I think the the impact on labor of this app might be a little troublesome, or the impact on cognition of this thing. Do we want to at least explore that or test this before we do it? Um, now, I would argue it's... it's they, and they didn't do that. No. Yeah. Of course not. No. I mean, and it, I would argue that it's too late. Um, and the problem is, I mean, what we're looking at is really the law. And the law is the way that we control society the law is what the monarchs used to create 
British East India Company. Mm. You know, the law is what, what we used for colonialism. And it was bad, but at least it was visible. The law can't catch up with code because the code is proprietary. Code is black boxed. So it, you know, in the, in, in the US, the judges are using proprietary algorithms to determine the prison sentences of, of, of convicted felons. And they're racist algorithms. Yeah. These are algorithms that determine your sentence based on the likelihood of you being caught for another crime. And they're coded by particularly white yeah. that too. men, right? That too, but, but, but they're not taking into account that, that they're not looking at whether you've, uh, they're not predicting whether you would commit another crime, but whether you're caught for another crime. And black people are caught for crimes more than white people, so you end up creating a feedback mm. loop. It goes back to Norbert Wiener. So now we've created a feedback loop of, of racism and prosecution, which leads to more racism and more prosecution, and then more crime. And uh, that's tricky. So then how do, you, how do you regulate if you're not even allowed to see it? I mean, yeah, it would have been, it would have been nice. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a fan of I mean, I, I, I like that Europe regulates and you know, the right to privacy and the right to be forgotten. I think that's all great. But I think the, the bigger solution is less allopathic in nature and a little more homeopathic. Mm. So I'm looking less to how do we protect people from these bad guys and more how do we strengthen the human organism to be more kind of culturally resistant. Do you think there should be even age limits or anything that kind of actually protects the children coming up now to actually, you know, understand that there are these two worlds and you don't necessarily have to spend your time looking at YouTube videos and, and Instagram and all these things. Well, yeah, but I don't know if I would, if I would execute it through, okay, don't get this until you're 12 or, I mean, yeah, you could have government recommendations. You know, and schools don't recommend children get, you know, a smartphone till they're 14 or go on Instagram till they're 16 mm. and this and that. I mean, yeah, but none of that matters if we don't uh, uh, retrieve or reify the sort of basic human dignity. You know, the kids who go to school now understand school as a way of increasing their utility value for the market. You know, school is an extension of job training, and that's not what school was invented for. You yeah. know, school, public school, was to give the coal miner some dignity so he could return home after a day in the mine and be able to read a novel or read a newspaper and participate meaningfully in democracy. You know, and now it's a way to train him for the job, for the job market. The, the principals of schools in America meet with the CEOs of companies to ask, what is it that you want the workers of tomorrow to know. Do you know? Excel, Python, Java, you know, what do we train them? And then you put the kid in the room and throw them on, on an iPad and have them, you know, learn to do this stuff so that they're more competent. And what have we done? We've just externalized the cost of job training to, again to yeah. the public sector and, and deprived young people of the sense that they matter in some way beyond their utility value. And I know it's, you know, it's unpopular in our, in, in atheist 21st century West to argue this, but I believe human beings have souls, that we come in with value, that if not souls, at least soul, you know, there's something. Uh, and, and if we don't uh, uh, teach our kids that they have intrinsic worth, and the only way to do that is through direct human contact, eye contact in a room, you know, that, that's hmm. the conspiracy I'm trying to launch here. 
you know, conspire, literally conspire means breathe together, conspire. That as we breathe together as humans, we establish rapport and social, some kind of social connection. We activate the mirror neurons and the oxytocin, and then we have power. But if you're throwing a kid on an iPad from the time they're in you know, kindergarten onward, then the ones I'm teaching five years now, every year I get more notes on the first day of class from students, from their doctors, from their psychiatrists saying, please excuse Johnny from class participation and presentations because he has social anxiety. So I'm not allowed to call on them or ask them questions. We're not allowed to interact because they had, I would argue it's not that they're, they're organically predisposed to any social behavior. It's because they haven't been trained. They haven't learned to establish rapport from the time they're little. And that's, uh, I mean, sure, and maybe they can code. You know, but you know, but so what? And then you're back to yeah. So they're they're going to be good at responding to that email you got. Yeah, exactly. But they, they they don't need to. They just press release the bots, and it does it all for you, right? So, but this is something that right. Your Gmail will reply yeah. for you, right? It'll reply for you. And I love the idea of my email replying to someone, and then their bot replying to them, yeah. and then I don't have they to just, do it. Yeah, they just have their own world. It's this mirror world thing yeah. that we were talking about, yeah. right? But that's something we can change, isn't it? Because if 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 in America, and I'm not sure what the situation is over here, but if there's schools going to the biggest corporations saying, what do we need to teach them? Surely that can be changed. Surely it's the other way around. Oh, corporations can't have onus because they're not real. They're, 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 they're non-player characters in this, in this game. You know, that's why I'm, I'm I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do law, and I'm great that there's lawyers and advocates and people to force corporations to do things and change rules and all. Yes, great, go. But... Um, I, I, all, we've got to strengthen the organism, you know, yeah. the human organism. It's, the, it's uh, our vitality that's being, that's being questioned. I, I feel like it's an easier path is to stop seeing them as real and to, to, turn, to turn away from them, to, to understand that we don't need their stinking jobs. You know, jobs are a form of slavery. Jobs are, are modern. Jobs came around in the Renaissance. Jobs only started after the chartered monopoly, that people had to go get a job instead of creating value and exchanging it. So uh, corporations are, are only, I mean, still, even now, they're only as powerful as, as um, communities' uh, uh, willingness to give up their land and people's you know, willingness to go buy their shit. Mm. But I guess that's all imbued into what's the alternative. For, you know, in today's civilization, people still need to put food on the table. They still, you know... Have you got any other suggestions beyond UBI and all these kind of things that have been mooted? Is there anything that you see as an actual tangible way of changing that value exchange? Yeah, I mean, I used to be a real fan of basic income and I wrote a kind of a glowing uh, uh, prediction or optimistic, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, a, a passioned plea for, for UBI in this book, uh, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. And then I gave a talk at Uber. And I was talking to them about their extractive policies, you know, and what they're doing to people, and how no one's going to be able to afford to drive for them or even use them. And they said, oh, yeah, but UBI. You know, and they started parroting it back at me. And I looked at UBI at that point, and I said, oh, I get it. For them, UBI is a way for them to just keep doing what they're doing. So the government prints money and gives it to people so they could spend it at Uber. And then Uber and these other companies that they end up just amassing a larger and larger share of, of assets. 
So I, I got off UBI, it feels like a, a, a Band-Aid, uh, and started thinking about universal basic assets instead, that I want, I, want, I want people to own stuff. I'm not into socialism of the sort that's the redistribution of the spoils of capitalism after the fact, because it really just it, it, it empowers us as consumers, but not as anything else. I'm into the idea of the workers owning the means of production before the fact. You know, it's what the popes called subsidiarity, or, or, or uh, uh, Belloc and Chesterton called distributism, and it's, it's worker ownership. So it's the Uber-owned, you know, Uber-owned Uber. You know, what would, what would that look like if the drivers owned Uber? Then they're, you know, doing R&D for their, for their robot replacements, but they're going to get the revenue from it when they're done. Um, so I think that's a, a easier. But I could see UBI as a, if it's a very temporary social security welfare-like, you know, measure to get us over, over a hump. But if it's used to, to delay uh, worker ownership of the means of production, then it's, then it's pointless. There's an alternative. If we say, we don't want your jobs, what is the alternative? And what is the time frame? I mean, it's, it's, time frame is tight. You know, I feel like the, I used to argue about the window of opportunity for, for genuine renaissance was limited. Now, it's in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was talking about the you know, cyber renaissance. Saying, look, you know, we've got maybe five or six years to really seize the opportunity, or the window's going to close, and this thing's going to become corporatized. You know, everybody was says to me, "Oh, you were so optimistic about digital technology, and now you're negative." It's like, no, I was optimistic. I was hopeful about our ability to seize an opportunity that I saw as extremely limited and precious, and that's why I went on the road, you know, for four years, saying, "Please, let's claim this." Let, let's claim this opportunity to retrieve the humanity that was repressed in the last renaissance to launch a new renaissance. Now, it's more the window of opportunity for um, species sustainability or, or certainly, you know, civilization survival. And uh, it, it is limited. But I think the, uh, the, the ways, I mean, they, it sounds uh, optimistic and old-fashioned, but it's to, to you know, to relocalize as as much as possible, you know, to look at your look at your food sources and where they're coming from, um, look at your consumption, mm. and and I mean, for me, it's it's about, you know, after this book tour, I'm looking at no more plane travel, just not doing it anymore, you know, it it it, it I, I could do talks to England and China. I travel. I got to see the world more than any human being deserves to, and then send your avatar. Hmm? You'll send your avatar soon. Yeah, I mean, my avatar's already here, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's the avatars of me, you know, running in, in parallel all over the friggin' world at this point. I mean, whether it's, you know, my Twitter account or my, you know. And, and it also, I mean, it's, it's about, you know, it's almost deindustrializing my own career as well, you know? I mean, yeah, there's some global collective solutions, but you know, narrow it down. So yeah, reducing our carbon footprints, reducing the amount of red meat we eat. Uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways. You could do a fairly slow unwinding in your own life over 10 years, and that at scale would, would do a lot. I mean, in terms of climate change, I'm looking less at, you know, oh, here's Doug Rushkoff's global one-size-fits-all industrial solution to the world's climate problems. We can shoot sulfur into the clouds and throw iron filings into the ocean and use this instead of that. It's like, no, it's like, what about, just like a coral reef has millions of distributed solutions? You know, and then we, this town tries to solve it this way, this town does it that way, and then what works gets modeled by other ones. 
but um, it's, it, we've got to kind of return to this uh, bottom-up, uh, uh, I, I keep talking about anarcho-syndicalism now, you know, uh, sort of networked cottage industries, networked micro-solutions to things. Um, you know, and I wouldn't pretend, oh, here's the global solution to climate change, but I could say that here's the approach I think we might take, which yeah, is one the mindset that we need to start adopting. Right, which is that you're you're not going to create the website that organizes all the websites of all the people who are doing all the things. You know, you know what I mean. Everybody comes to me. That's the most common email I get of the hundreds and hundreds I get every day. Oh. I've created the system that's going to reorganize the blah, blah, blah. Or here's the new way capitalism should happen. Or here's my, I just need $1 billion <laughs> to prototype the first eco-village for millennials. Right? And they've got pages and pages and PDFs, and here's the rules, and here's how women will be protected, and here's how we'll do our energy, and here's how we'll resource our pee. And, it's like, and all these giant you know, vision statements for these things. And, you know, let's just get, you know, we just have to clear, you know, a forest to go do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, let's, let's move on from that to um, about memetics, because you write mm. about memetics a lot in, in the book and the role of memes in paralyzing our critical faculties. Um, I was wondering, you're in, you're in your 50s now. Do you feel equipped to be able to defend yourself against the persuasive design um, built into these apps? You know, what's your safe word? <laughs> I essentially do you think that being that being fifty is too old to defend myself? No, I'm saying you should. I, you should, I, you should be strong I, now that after all this you? experience, I can. Yeah, can you? Um, do you yeah. feel like Neo? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know when I felt like Neo was when um, on my Twitter feed the the video clip of the kid in the MAGA hat facing yeah. off with a Native mm -hmm. American came through. And I saw all my friends retweeting it with their horrified, look at this MAGA horrible sociopath and all their clever comments on, oh, the next president and things like that. And um, I felt like Neo in that I was like, why are you responding to this? Yeah. Why are you, you, you weren't there. You're, you're not there. You don't know. You're not in this person's shoes. Where's your compassion for the two people? Who knows? Who knows what's happening here? You know, why can't you wait, you know, the way we were taught when we were 11, at least wait for a real journalist to go and find out what happened before you start venting your outrage and projecting your bullshit on this. And so that's when I felt like Neo, because my friends and colleagues, professional journalists and intellectuals who should know better, are spreading this crap. They're being played. They're being played. And that's the way the technologies were designed. I've spoken to the kids who made this stuff. This stuff is designed to, as we all know, to bypass your critical faculties and hit your brainstem and get you to respond in a fight or flight um, instant way. That's, that's the science of, uh, of captology. That's taught at Stanford. You then go where you go to learn how to do this. Uh, so I feel like Neo in that, in that but I felt like that since, you know, when I wrote Media Virus in 1994, and I call Media Virus my problem child, right? Media Virus went viral, but people didn't read the subtitle of the book, which was Hidden Agendas in Popular Culture. And what the whole point of Media Virus was that effective media viruses stimulate a cultural immune response because they find the unresolved code 
in the culture. And the people who read that book were the Russians when they were looking at how do we use, how do we use propaganda to divide America. Oh, Rushkoff told us. And I was wondering why there were so many copies that were sold in <laughs> Russia. Because it was a ton, a ton. Really? So, yeah, because and that, that is the playbook. If you look at the, the New York Times movies that they did on the, uh, what did they call it, the, the sort of the disinformation or, or, uh, uh, war against, against the US, which is overrated or, or, or overestimated in some ways, but the, the strategy was to embed, uh, embed memes in uh, uh, potentially polarized sort of hot, on hot issues to, to push the polarization and, and promote viral spread. But my point in media virus, again, was media viruses are valuable because as, uh, as probes, the way McLuhan would say it, as cultural probes, they reveal what are our unaddressed agendas and force conversations. So the Rodney King virus in the US, which was the, sort of one of the first media viruses of a black guy getting beaten by white cops that ended up leading to you know, full-scale rioting in America, that tapped unresolved racism and never doing reparations and all that in, in the US, because we had, we had all these slaves and stuff. We were very bad. Um, and we never, we never uh, uh, compensated for that. We never really addressed that. We, now we have movies about robot slaves you know, revolting. And that's still, that's just our guilt at the real slaves that we had. We still can't just look back for a second. We futurize as a defense mechanism rather than futurizing, you know, as a, as a, as a real verb, which is a whole other, a whole other story. But yeah, so I looked at media virus as my problem child because they didn't understand what I was saying was this is a way for us to uh, address our uh, uh, unresolved cultural problems, not a way for marketers to get people to buy, you know, this detergent versus that one. So, you know, you've been looking at this stuff for decades now, you know, is the, is the solution, how to become uh, immune to these kind of viral moments, the viruses, you know, you can't stop them because they bounce into your WhatsApp, you know, you... you, you right. You, 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 but how do you do it in real life, you know? Yeah. How do you do it in real life? You take care of yourself. You get sleep, get sex, get good food. You know the the the. I used to say this to to you know when I would do this talk in college, college kids are called MTV is not your friend, and I would talk to them about television ads and how you know the the ad for blue jeans invariably what it says is wear these blue jeans and you will get laid, right? <laughs> Who is that commercial for? For someone who's not getting laid. So what does television want from you? Does it want you getting laid or not getting laid? It wants you not getting laid so that you watch the commercials and think that buying those jeans will get you laid. The person getting laid is a bad target, right? So get laid, you know, it's sort of, it, it's sort of, it's sort of that. So that's, the, that's, that's the solution. Everyone just, well, it's Valentine's Day, so we all know what to do, right? Okay. Well, I mean, it is part of the solution, right? Why don't we get laid? Because of shame and fear and all those things that they use to make us not get laid or think, you know, that sex is what, you know, and, and getting laid is, is uh, really a, a, a good uh, placeholder for experiencing intimacy with other human yeah. beings. That the, the job of media is to make us afraid of one another so that we're looking at these signifiers for human relationships rather than human relationship. And that's, that's the whole, whole, whole thing. And it, 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 
feeds on itself and feeds on itself and feeds on itself. So even now, oh, I don't have time to be to forge solidarity with you because there's climate change, you know, or because uh, I've got to support this or that. You know what I mean? You can you can play that to that to, to to the end. And so now, I mean, some environmentalists will say to me, other than why are you promoting humanity? Humanity is the problem, um, which I understand. Uh, they'll say, look. You're asking that people pause and reflect and be with each other and look in each other's eyes. We don't have time for that. We don't have time for yeah. that. You know, and it's like, but no. But they're scared it, to as well. Because yeah. they're so like, you know, there. They're not there. You know, you're not looking at people for sustain. Right. You know, I guess a lot of people in this room work in the tech industries. You must find it very difficult. You know, I know I do myself to yeah. kind of like not look at my phone for, you know, if, if, for, you know, if you put it down for a day, that's like a real test. Of endurance. Yeah. Well, I'm asking people now to find to try 10 minutes a week to start. That's the goal. I mean, with the students, I say try find 10 minutes a week that you can just be with another person without any devices. And you're allowed to do anything with the person. You could play cards with the person. You can talk. You can have sex, but you can't like Instagram yeah. while you're having the yeah. sex. No yeah. selfies but during. The thing is, yeah. but they still need to put the tunes on, right? So Spotify. You know, you so can it's do like, it without tunes. So you need, so you it need can records. Be done. So it's like, okay, really? It can be done. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I've, got the, I've got to the age of 40 and not even realized that. Yeah. My God. But talking about this kind <laughs> of, um, you know, this dynamic, this kind of, um, you know, I'm thinking about kind of billionaires and kind of how they can actually, and I, I read your Medium piece yeah. and you touch on it in the book about, you know, how they're actually, you know, um, They've got they, plan B ready. They've they got plan yeah. B, but they're not thinking about plan A. They're not thinking about, actually, if I start to redistribute yeah. a lot of my wealth, I don't actually need yeah. plan B. But part of this, I would argue, is your fault. Okay, yeah. probably. Part of it, no, it's the futurist's fault. Because, you know, the, the beauty of the digital age was that we were going to create the future. The future became a topic of, not just of conversation, but of... Uh, 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 creative potential. Right? We saw the digital future, the digital renaissance, as uh, the unbridled capacity of the collective human imagination to create any reality we wanted. Then when Wall Street came into the digital future, they wanted to know stock futures. They wanted futurists to not tell them what could be, but what will be, because they want to bet on it. So they're looking at how do we reduce uncertainty and create the most predictable outcomes. And it turns out the problem in, in the accuracy of future forecasts is these pesky humans and all their novelty and unpredictability. So we create algorithms that have no purpose other than to reduce human novelty, to reduce the 20% the of people who are not going to follow what the algorithm says, get that down to 10, get that down to 5. Because human activity, human novel behavior, that to the forecasters is noise. That's what it's called, noise. And I'm arguing that the noise is the thing, that we've got figure and ground reversed, that noise is what keeps us going. Noise is where the new ideas come from. Noise is where that weird liminal stuff that makes us human happens. So I want to bring up the noise, bring up the funk, right? Um, you know, that, that's, that's where human potential is. And uh, so, so I do feel that, that, that those of us who surrender to you know, the Fortune 100's need for what do we do next quarter? What's going to happen? What's going to be the color in two years? What's going to be the, the, the fashion sentiment driving this? And then you tell them what it's going to be. Then they're going to try to make that happen and reduce, yeah, 
what's our most likely outcome, if you really want to play that game, is that we all die. So if you feed them the most probable future and help them steer and help them prepare for the inevitable future rather than create the alternative future, then you're contributing to our imminent demise. But they're still humans, right? The people who, you know, started, the, you know, Jeff Bezos in his garage, he, you know, at they're one not, point... No, but they've lost but, their humanity. Read the Bible. What happened to the Pharaoh after the first two plagues? What did God do? He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardened his heart, and that meant he became a bot. He became an algorithm. He became an AI. These people are not, I'm sorry, they're not human. They're not human. They are, the, they are uh, reacting to the needs of a model, and they don't even know the model is there. Poor little Mark Zuckerberg thought he was disrupting something, right? And he disrupted right up here, but he was running on an operating system that he accepted as if it was nature, the operating system of corporate capitalism, but he doesn't even know it's there. He thinks that's just the way things are. Right? All, of these, all of these platforms are running on an OS that has not been challenged, and that's what we have to challenge. It's an extractive 12th century economic operating system devised by monarchs who are afraid of losing their power to a rising middle class. You know, and it's, not, it, it's obsolete. It doesn't work on digital steroids. It just kills everything in its path. So it's interesting that Facebook's latest earnings report showed a growth in profits and users, even in the US. It shows that even after all the, the breaches, all the, all the noise you know, that we've been saying about how bad it is, it's, it's more profitable than ever. You know, why, are, why aren't people taking a real stand? You know, are, are they not equipped? You know, do we feel impotent to actually enact change because we are so addicted to that connection that what we believe is a human connection? First... I don't believe their data points. Facebook lie. They lie, right? They say that George Soros is a whatever. They lie. So fuck them. No, I, I, I don't Surely see that's I see the opposite. Though. I see less use of Facebook, more suspicion of Facebook, less time being spent. I think that, I think that the, yeah, I think they're lying. And they get caught. Oh, we messed up our numbers. Oh, the algorithm told mm. us. Oops, computer error. What are you, bullshit. It bullshit. I think they're less. I think they are less central to our conversation. At the same time, I think they're a valuable utility for people in Africa who don't have access to the internet otherwise. So if those numbers are going up, you know, fine, because they they don't have anything to offer Facebook. You know, they're they're actually getting getting a service. So do you think you know there was a piece in the Economist uh, yesterday day before? So what happens when if Facebook got turned off? Do you think the world would be a, a better place in terms of what would actually you know? It must do some good, like you just said, in Africa, in places that you can actually you know, connect. Do you think it still has any innate worth? Do you feel it's too late for these companies to turn around? It's interesting. It's, it's, now I feel like it's weird. I feel like the college professor saying this. But when you use the construction, if Facebook got turned off, it's a, a passive construction who turned it off? Under what conditions? You know, did the, did the people storm Facebook? Turn it off? At the castle, yeah. Did the government say, Facebook, you must turn off? And they turned off. Did uh, so many people go off the service that it just broke? Uh, so it, it, it depends. You know, I mean, it depends on the whole, the whole context around it. In isolation, uh, it's, it's a... It's a it's a what-if fantasy scenario that 
the way I contextualize it would determine. Do you know what I mean? It's like if, if you like, ask the genie, I want Facebook to be turned off. Mm. And then the genie goes, OK. And then six atomic bombs drop on <laughs> Facebook servers and kill all of uh, uh, Los Angeles or something. Um, oh, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Um, so it depends. No, it's, it's, it's it, Well, I guess, is there a way of making these platforms more humane? So, yeah. No, so in terms if, the of workers, like, if the workers own Facebook, if it were a platform cooperative, then it's local to them. You know, then the impact of Facebook is on their own lives. If any of these companies ran like family businesses, uh, it, would, it would have helped a lot. You know, they're, they're, it's okay to have two or three companies on the planet that scale, because there's certain things that are interesting to see what happens as globally scaled things, but everybody's trying to scale now. Everybody wants to be the next Facebook or the, this or that. And that's where, uh, that's where the problem is. Face the problem with Facebook is not its size, it's that it has to continue to grow. It's not allowed to reach, it's not allowed to right size. Mm. So if under capitalism Facebook has to grow, then, yeah, then we have to kill it. Surely the, the way to, to help with this is actually us you know, having the power in our data. No, because they're selling our data, they're misusing our data. Yeah. All, all these companies are, Netflix, Amazon, everyone, right? Isn't that the way to kind of like to start getting to that utopia, that UBI, or even just leveling the playing field? It's like, I know what you've got on me and I need to kind of commercialize it because that's how I could actually create an income for myself. Do you think that's a way, is there a model in there? Yeah, that's well, that's sort of the Jaron Lanier model is you create micro transactions for everything. So you get out of bed on the left side this morning instead of the right and that data is valuable to the Serta mattress company. So we beam it up to them and then you get 0.0007 cents you know, for, your, for, your, for your data and everything you do. So then you, the problem with that is you will end up optimizing your life to be data rich. How can I provide more data? I'm going to give them tons of data now about this chair. Oh, you know, oh, look, oh, how much? Oh, I got another penny, another penny. You know, you know, so, and then, then what? Then you're really <laughs> dancing for the, for the man at that point. So I don't, I don't see that as, as, as a good solution. I mean, I'm, I'm trying, uh, and this sounds almost anti-Jewish in a way, and I don't mean it that way, but it's a Christian sensibility. I'm trying to get things off the books and into the heart. You know, to, to, let's not have a metric for every single little thing that we can't, we can't code, we can't code life. You know, that's, I think, what we're learning, that no matter how granular we get, it's, it's, it sucks a certain kind of energy. It's like a Faraday cage of code in some ways that everything gets, gets uh, uh, grounded. Uh, but to your, to your, to your point about, about data, I mean, I see one of two scenarios happening. Either because every single Silicon Valley company I know has data as its exit plan, it means that there's a data bubble. They can't all sell this data. It's going to be worthless pretty soon. Marketing and research has never accounted for more than 3 or 4% of the GDP. So now, how is it going to account for 90% of the GDP? It just, it can't. No, not everything is advertising. You can't advertise, advertise of advertising. Someone has to buy something along the way, or there's no funds for the ads. You know, where, you know, in, in our careers, it's like I'm supposed to write for free in order to advertise my talks, but talk for free in order to advertise my articles, and do my articles for free in order to advertise my consulting, which I'm supposed to do for free to sell my books. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute, where, <laughs> where, where, does, where, does, where does the actual uh, cash come in? So either it becomes worthless through a bubble like that, or we're smart enough to create a data commons 
which is what I would do. Figure out, maybe this is a good use of blockchain. Figure out a data commons where we all share our data into one big thing so then the institutes of health and everyone else can just solve cancer and AIDS and climate change and all because we've got all the data and can actually run it in, in non-proprietary ways. It's, it's, it's bursting out those bubbles. You know, how do we as humans become more resilient? You know, because there seems to be this sense that resilience is lacking. You know, do you feel that way? And do you feel that, you know, what is a way that we can actually become more resilient as humans? I mean, there's, there's two main obstacles to our resilience as humans. You know, one is the one I've been talking about, our desocialization, our fear of each other, inability to make eye contact, our, our, our you know, degradation of the human spirit, our understanding of ourselves as only having utility value, the no, no belief in human dignity or any intrinsic worth and all that. Um, on the other hand is the financial precarity that people are in. You know, we've got to work how many jobs now in order to try to keep your, your family going? And uh, it's easy for me as now, I got my first job, right, four years ago, as now a college professor with tenure, um, in theory, I mean, this was the plan anyway, in theory, now I should be able to live out the rest of my life, right, because I have a job. I mean, and that is just such a weird, strange feeling, but it's also relieved me of the whole, I don't have to get to say whatever the fuck I want now, right? I mean, it's, it's a weird, privileged place that I realize other people aren't in. So I can say, oh, spend time making eye contact when someone else is like, I don't have time to make eye contact. I'm working seven jobs right now and still, you know, it's interesting when the white, when the white upper middle class began to experience the same precarity as the working class. Now it's like, oh, let's talk about economic reform. Uh, but, but again, the path, even the path to labor reform is solidarity. It's lack of shame. How much do you make? How much do I make? You know, we, we're, when we're ashamed of our salaries, that just empowers the people who are paying them. You know, once we're comparing and contrasting, once we're, again, how are we gonna, let's, maybe we can do this ourselves. Maybe, you know, rather than working for this coffee shop, we'll make our own coffee shop. Uh, all of a sudden, the, the possibilities open. So, you know, it's, it's, it's some of it's good old-fashioned uh, labor organizing. You know, and labor organizing is, again, not seeing yourself just as labor, but seeing yourselves as human beings who, who work. You know, and there's, you know, and again, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, bringing dignity into all these, into all these areas. And, and, and not believing the, 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 the scarcity model, the whole, uh, artificial scarcity that's being created by, by markets in America. We're tearing down houses now because we don't want the market value to go down. If a house is in foreclosure and they can't sell it, they tear it down. Because otherwise, look what it does to the books. Look what it does to all the, the housing futures. We burn food every week while there's people starving. The U.S. Department of Agriculture burns food. And it's like we can't let people eat that food or live in those houses because they don't have jobs. There's, if there's one or two or three things that people can do right now in this room, there's a small bunch of right us now here. Right in this but, room? But Close the doors. Close the doors. <laughs> We're in for a long night. Um, no, but to embed this human agenda, you know, and it, beyond, you know, the human connection, we've, you know, we've, we have connected in this room. There's been some, what, what do you call it in the book? Limbic consonance, uh -huh. right? When the mood of a room changes, you're, you're locked in, your nervous system's all in sync with what we're t discussing. But when you walk out there, we're all going to be on our phones, we're going to be back in our bubbles. What can we actually do, you know, 
everyone in this room, is there anything that they can actually enact right now? Yeah, well, it starts, you know, when you, when you have an addiction uh, or self-destructive behavior of any kind, it's really hard to just stop, right? The first stage is becoming more aware of when you're doing it, you know? And there, there you, you experience a bit of, uh, it's almost like a, a dystonia. It's like, oh, wow, look, I'm checking my email now, and I really don't want to be, but I'm doing it. And, I'm, and wow, and how is this making me feel? And you do it, and then you finish, and then you go, okay, next time, I'm going to see if I cannot. And then the next time, you know, you take like five seconds. Oh, do I want to check my I really don't want to because I don't want to fall. Oh, all right, I'll do it. And then you do it again, and you're like, okay, now I'm watching, and now this is feeling even weirder because I really, wow. And then you do it, and you're like aware. Then you're like looking at this person who's doing this thing that you don't really want to be doing, and you're, most of your consciousness is just watching that person. And then slowly but surely, you're then, you just don't do it. You know, so, so I guess I'm inviting you to experience the discomfort and, and uh, dissonance between your felt uh, desire and felt experience of life and the behaviors in which you're engaging. You know, and then look for those opportunities. You know, when I walk down the street in New York now and see all the people on their phones and all that, the fun game that I'm playing is to find another. Someone else who's playing the same game that I'm playing. And they're out there, who's just walking down and looking. Oh, there's one. Hey! <laughs> Look at all. Isn't this weird? Okay. Wink, wink. It's like, it's like, you know, it's like playing body snatchers in a way. You know, they're, they're, they're all in body snatch mode. And they don't even notice you, though. You know, it's not like they're watching out for you. And then you find another one. And it's what I used to do when I, would, um, when I was a raver. And I'd go to a rave and then walk around San Francisco the next morning and you look, you look around and you see someone, because <laughs> yeah. there's like 2,000 people, yeah. you see someone and even if you don't recognize them from it, you could tell they were there, you know? <laughs> and it's like, oh, 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 because uh, we were there till four in the morning or whatever. And, and it's just that, you know, I am, are you? Uh, it's like, it, you, it's the conspiracy of the living, you know, it, walking around in zombie land. And the more you do it, the more it reinforces and the more fun it is. And yeah, I, I totally play agree. That and uh, I just want to thank you, Douglas, for spending this uh, Valentine's morning with us. So thank you, thank everyone. Thank you. Happy Valentine's Day. Critical Horizons was hosted by Tim Noakes for the Future Laboratory. If you would like to learn more about how we can help to make a better future happen for your business, go to www.thefuturelaboratory.com and also make sure you bookmark our editorial platform at www.lsn.global.